This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the New Books in Japanese Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Rantz Wagenberg, a historian of Japan at Penn State. Today, I'll be talking to Jennifer Pro about her book, Kyoto Revisited, Heritage Tourism in Contemporary Japan, which came out with Hawaii this year, 2022. With me today also is Dr. Danielle Milne of Kyoto University, who is coordinating with me our own project on Kyoto heritage and history. Kyoto Revisited looks at the uses and effects of heritage in tourism in Kyoto today. Uh, in Kyoto today, seen through city policy and advertising, hotel infrastructure and tour guiding, season-based events, tourism to sites connected to Bakumatsu period hero Sakamoto Ryoma, and the phenomena of walking in rental kimono around the city. Emphasizing the ways experience-based tourism has been transforming Kyoto's tourists tourist landscape. Pro examines how heritage has been understood, marketed, and experienced by both the tourist industry and domestic and international tourists. Through interviewing long-term tour guides and revealing the traces of past tourism forms in hotels and other tourist infrastructure, among other methodologies, Kyoto Visit explored the local impact uh, and uh, of global and national shifts in tourism on Kyoto's domestic and international tourism industry from about the 1970s to the COVID era. Uh, incidentally, pro period of fieldwork neatly overlapped with the rapid escalation of foreign tourist numbers to the city with growing calls to address over-tourism, but also the current crisis uh, in tourism uh, with Japan close to tourists. Uh, the book does provide important insight into Kyoto during the decades of the biggest transition in international tourism to the city in the last half century. Kyoto Revisited does demonstrate not only how the past has been used to construct the city's identity and shape understanding of Japan for travelers, but also how these speak to broader trends in our contemporary moments. Good evening uh, and good morning, both of you. Hi, good morning. Um, thanks for having me here, Ren. Yes, and good evening. It's lovely to be here joining you tonight. <laughs> Stuck in our different time zones. Um I might ask the first uh, question, um, Jen. Um, the timing of your book, the period that you cover is, I think, um, really important. You've got this very significant uh, turning period in tourism to Japan and to Kyoto. What brought you to this research topic just at the start of this important turning point in Kyoto's tourism? Yeah, I wish I could say that I was pre- prescient and I saw this all coming. Um, it uh, The project came up and that's when I got the grant. And actually, when I started this research, it was January of 2012. So it felt like at that moment, the worst time to start studying tourism because it was 
not quite a year after the earthquake and tsunami of March 2011. So actually, when I arrived to start studying tourism in Kyoto, all the numbers were down um, and had been for almost nine months. And over that first eight months of my field work, they picked up gradually by the summer, by the time I left, they had picked up. Um, but when I started, it felt like the worst moment to to study tourism in Kyoto. Um, and, and then my book went to press right after you know, we had all closed for 2020. So it almost immediately became a historical document uh, <laughs> encapsulating this boom that happened in that decade. Um, the recovery happened pretty quickly. I mean, by 2013, Tokyo had been announced as the next Olympic site, and really the city was starting to prepare for that. Um, uh, but uh, I think maybe research is always this way. It feels like anthropology is this way. It's part planning and part serendipity. So um, uh, that's mostly how it happened. But the, you know, the tourism numbers just increased dramatically between 2012, really by the end of 2012, and and until Japan closed in 2020. And as we're recording today, actually, tourism has came back to Japan, right? It's a serendipitous day, I guess. Yeah, that's <laughs> so. right. Yeah, it's open for the first time to tourists since, uh, well, really, April of 2020. I mean, you could go, I think, if you were a part of a set tour that had um, government approval, but uh, visas, airports are open as of today. So, yes, here we are. So I want to ask you, I just want to go right into the uh, maybe theoretical heart or like some of the important questions the book raised, which are about heritage. It's something which incidentally both me and Daniel are, are working on, but from the historical angle. So I want to start with a quote. Uh, you argue in the book that heritage have multiple meanings. Uh, those meanings are created, you say, as interested parties, state and local, public and private, tell different stories about the past, which are marketed in response to tourist desires, for face-to-face engagement, engagement in what you call an experience economy. Now, um, there's a lot to unpack here. Uh, first and foremost, the role of experience, but I want to focus here on heritage. Um, some, though not most researchers, will take issue with this emphasis on commodified heritage or experience and ways created. Can you maybe expand on this? Isn't Kyoto really the heart of Japan? Yeah, this is such a great question to start with. I, this is one of the central tensions that I really tried to address and struggled with in the book. I think um, my answer is kind of yes and. On the one hand, I think Kyoto is in some ways seen as, understood as the heart of Japan. It was the capital from 794 until 1868. And even as the seat of power shifted, um, it housed the imperial household and and all the accoutrements and traditional crafts that go with that. Most of the religious institutions have their headquarters there. Um, it wasn't firebombed in World War II, and so it kept more of its old feel than certainly Tokyo, and uh, the cities attended to historic preservation districts all along. So it is a charming city with views of the hills, um, and, and I think people respond to it. So there is... There is some, I guess I would say, real heritage there. Um, 
one of the things that has been surprising about this research is that when I've given talks about it, um, even scholars and other researchers will come up to me afterwards and tell me about their favorite thing about Kyoto. Um, so there's this, there is this kind of charm or appeal to the city. And I, I think that's very real. Um, on the other hand, some of these very same features have been commodified, which doesn't mean that they're all fake, but they have been marketed or put to other use or packaged for tourists and tourist expenses, experiences. Um, and of course, there are some things that get added along the way, um, con constructed or recreated. Um, I really think both those things are true, and that's one of the tensions I'm trying to play with in the book. I do resist some of the language of, uh, in a lot of tourism books, that you'll hear Kyoto's become a museum to itself, or it's almost become a theme park of heritage. And I resist that extremity um, as well, while trying to keep all those things in tension. Um, and one of the ways that I wanted to focus on all those different parties, local officials, businesses, tourists themselves, locals themselves, is because I think all of those things, those the heritage is important to all those groups in somewhat similar ways and in different ways. So I was trying to keep all those things in balance throughout the chapters as I was as I was looking at things. Um, so. I think my line, my my line there is yes, and it, it there is heritage there, and it's commodified, and that's a part of what's happened, particularly in this per this moment. So yeah, I guess for us, uh, oh, sorry, Daniel. Go ahead, Ryan. That's it for us as as people who have been living uh, and and coming going from Japan for a long time. Is the language that is used, um, especially by all those interested parties? Of course, it's it's very. Um, how should I put it? Uh, it's it it's designed to push buttons, which uh, which it's very easy to see as cynical and commodified, and, and you know, aiming at aiming at aiming at listing emotions that we're kind of a little bit more comfortable with, like Orientalism and the like, right? Yeah. yeah. Sorry. <laughs> uh, go ahead. Yeah. I think that's true. One of the things that I was really struck by was and and tried to think about was the way that while Japanese domestic tourists and international tourists obviously have really different relationships to Kyoto, um, they also travel to Kyoto for some of the same reasons. So I would talk to Japanese tourists who would say, well, when we travel, we don't do this anywhere else, but when we travel to Kyoto, we always stay in a ryokan and we wear yukata and we, there, there is a way in which um, of course, not all, um, but but many domestic tourists also travel to Kyoto for some of those same reasons um, that maybe aren't Orientalism, but a different kind of approach to their own heritage. Um, uh, and in both senses, it's romantic, I think, or romanticized in the marketing of it, right? Yes. Yeah, actually, when I came back to, so I just came back to Japan uh, last week, um, I got on a Hankyu train from Osaka and I got on the Kyoto train. I'd never been on the Kyoto train before. It's a train inside, in the seats, they're all tatami seats with sort of tatami backings. And they have gardens, you know, little rock gardens within the train. Um, Noren at the entrance to each carriage. Really amazing thing. And you can see that um, 
all these people coming from Osaka, from different parts of Kansai, are coming up on that train. You know, it's part of the experience of this transition to uh, their own past or their idea of their own past. It was fascinating. I might switch now, though, to experience. Uh, it's, of course, connected. Um, I was really interested in the change that you show in your book. Um, and you discuss the transition in tourism through seeing. Um, miru, you talk about it, that you use the Japanese terms here, encountering, furedo, and the experiencing, or taiken. Can you tell us about how these can be seen in Kyoto and also the significance of the Japanese concepts? Why are these important too? Yeah, the terms, um, so one of the things I like about those terms is that we, we think about the ways you can see different layers of history in Kyoto. You can en encounter markers to different moments in history, but these are kind of marking um, different eras of tourism, although they all still happen now to some extent. And the terms themselves came up in interviews with longtime tour guides um, or um, people in shops that I talked to and, and in some of the city's documents as well. And so uh, if we think about seeing tour tourism or miru tourism, you think about mass mass tourism, people on buses driving to a famous site and hearing something about the city along the way, and then they all get out and see it and take a picture. You were, you were traveling to see something famous. Um, and so uh, you might think about all of the ways we can think about mass tourism and the way that that gets packaged. And you can see those layers in the city, right? So around particular sites, there always has to be a parking lot uh, out of the way, out of sight, but for the big buses. Um, and and so you, you can see this and feel this if you're attentive uh, in the city. Where are big souvenir centers near places where lots of people are going? So the city gets shaped by this kind of tourism as well, or, or we can see the remnants of it. Um, even places like um, Gion corner, which is a place to experience some uh, maiko or geisha traditions, or the Nishijin Textile Center. Those are both uh, traditional craft areas that are made for tour buses, basically, to come to, to show um, larger groups of tourism. So, so that is an early era, earlier era of tourism, but it's also still a part of the city today. Um, and that the tour guides I talked to, uh, Fureya or Fureru came up as encountering, and it was always identified, and this came up in several interviews, as this moment in the 90s when, when Lonely Planet came out. Um, and, and people would say things like, all of a sudden there were foreigners wandering around in some district where they never used to go, right? So you, you had this guide and you could find your own way. Um, so they would talk about this as a different moment in in Kyoto's tourism. Um, and, and another example would be the way tourist information centers worked. So the big tourism information center that was right across from Kyoto Station for a long time was very scripted and made for mass tourism. And in the 90s, you started to be able to, um, if, you, if you couldn't speak Japanese, you could uh, connect with a staff person there who would help you call and make your hotel reservation. So there were starting to be ways in which you could find your own way in Kyoto a little bit. And the goal there was 
to get off the beaten path and to explore and see local culture a little bit more. Um, but so many of the guides and especially people who have been involved in tourism for a long time would always talk about that as a different moment when people started wandering around and trying to find their own way in the 90s. So clearly mass tourism is much easier for the city to manage, right? We need some parking lots and we have to kind of hide them, but it's much harder to manage once people are trying to find their own way. Uh, and then part of what I'm arguing is Taiken is the new turn. So it's also finding your own way, but it's looking for much stronger experiences. So not just a little encounter with local life, but more experiences like walking around in kimono or yukata or cooking classes or traditional craft classes. Um, and you can see all of that in contemporary Kyoto as well. So you can see all of these layers, um, but there's a move to Taiken now. And you see that in some of the city documents as well and the kinds of experiences that different places are trying to market or advertise. And it's not particular to Kyoto. The turn to experiential tourism, I think, is happening more globally. Airbnb, for example, in the last, just before COVID, had added experiences to their website. And so you can you can sign up for local experiences. So I think that's a broader trend sort of globally, but this is the way we can see it happening in, in Kyoto in particular. Um, uh, Kyoto, like the Taiken, um, the experience part, actually, is, is pretty fascinating as, as someone, as for people who, I mean, were not used to it. Uh, I mean, I wouldn't walk around with kimono. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I wouldn't walk around with kimono, and I guess, because um, it's really not experiencing, I, I would say, not experience how people live, but how you... Because no one in Kyoto, no no regular regular quote unquote Kyotoites walk around in kimono, right? And and um, I, I hope my mom or my wife don't listen to this. But you know, when when we when we were when my mom was was in in Kyoto, in Kyoto and she walked around this corner in Gion, and she would want to take pictures of all those uh, Maiko, and I kept wanting to tell her that. Those are not real, <laughs> not real Michael, not real Geisha. And my wife's like, "Don't tell her. It's fine. Don't tell her." <laughs> and and she was very happy. But you know, in, in my mind, of course, this is not real Taiken. This is a form of cosplay in in a way, right? Uh, um, a form of cosplay. And that's I, I think this is how you frame it, right? It's something similar to historical reenactment in a way. If we take it a little bit more seriously um but it's also something unique about it i think uh, i've uh, you said it exists other places but i think kyoto in particular and especially specifically with and i want to hear your opinion about it. i I think specifically with asian visitors because one of the main ways that i could tell that those people in kimono are not real geisha is that they spoke chinese so uh, i i want to why is it so popular with with chinese and what's what's about Kimono and Kyoto. What is this connection here that uh, that you see that I see? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. Um, I I kept wanting to, especially in the chapter about kimono rental. I was like, I got to come up with the reason why Asian tourists, in particular, are in kimono. And one of the problems with doing maybe contemporary or in situ immediate research is that we might just need more time before we know that exactly. 
Um, but it was interesting because in, when I was interviewing in 2012, everybody I talked to, they were like, well, we're trying to increase tourism, but Chinese tourists are just not interested in Kyoto. They have, they, they like Osaka for shopping and they like Tokyo, but they have beautiful nature and temples in China. So they don't need to come to Kyoto. I heard that over and over and over again. And then, (laughs) and then the Chinese tourism boom happened, right? So Chinese tourists, it turns out, do really like Kyoto and they like going to the temples and shrines. Um, And, and this, this, Taikan of wearing kimono really took off with with that group. In in the book, I compare it to cosplay and historical reenactment, mostly because I was trying to think about um, what are something we could compare this to as a way to analyze this thing that was sort of happening in the moment. And I think it is different than both of those examples. Both of those examples, cosplay and historical reenactment have a kind of story or a narrative that you're playing out, even if it's not exactly, or in cosplay, you might be in character and not acting out a story. But there is some kind of narrative there. And that that's not happening in kimono rental, as you say, nobody's playing out a movie, it's just putting on a version of the Japanese traditional dress and trying to walk around in the heritage district. So it is embodied, but it's not reenacting history or playing out any kind of narrative. And in that way, it's definitely touristic practice and, and much thinner. Um, the other thing that I think um, yeah. is clear about it is that it's largely about the experience of walking around in the heritage district and, and, f- feeling the heritage in some ways, but it's also about taking good selfies or pictures of yourself in kimono with the beautiful traditional background. And in the over-tourism, in the peak of conversations about over-tourism before Japan closed, that Instagram curating of tours was a big thing that kept coming up, the way that people were curating their tours from social media, and that was especially disruptive to have everybody wanting to pose in in front of the same thing. So I think that did become a, a part of the problem. I wish I had a great answer as to exactly why. I would argue that, um, I would speculate at least that for Asian tourists in particular, dressing up in kimono and walking in the heritage district is a way to experience Japanese culture that's very distanced from anything that would be politically touchy or any remnant of World War II or any national tensions at all, right? This is a a romanticized, again, version of Japan seeing people in kimono and walking on cobblestones, shopping in the the wooden areas. And so it's a kind of um, safe, fun form of Japanese tourism, I would argue. Yeah. Even though there was a case in... Did you hear about a case in China about a week week ago, was Daniel? I think you sent me the... The, the case that you're talking about there, I think, Ran, is um, a Chinese woman walking around in her hometown and um, wearing kimono and being arrested by a policeman who was yelling at her, you know, you're Chinese, you shouldn't be wearing these Japanese clothes. Um, is that the case you're talking about, Ran? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that may, maybe this apolitical nature of it might change because China is changing also rapidly. And we didn't have any Chinese stories for the last two years, and nor will we have for the next, at least, I don't know how long, right? True, true. There's another case of, 
I think you sent me a link about this uh, Chinese uh, shopping center that was a Kyoto themed shopping center, and they eventually canned it. They eventually shifted it to your, your typical shopping center, I guess, with your Gucci and those typical things. So perhaps there's some change within China as well in that regard. Um, as relations with Japan shift and change, um, the way people think about kimono and Kyoto uh, shifts and change as well, becomes more or less political. Can I ask you something uh, also about kimono? Because we talk mostly about Chinese tourists. Uh, I was told, and you and I, 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 maybe it's just anecdotal, uh, by a Zainichi, a Japanese Korean friend, that Chinese, those quote, <laughs> those Chinese people can wear kimono, but we Koreans will never walk around in kimono. Is this this rings true to you? The Koreans, Korean tourists, do not wear kimono. I think that uh, it's less frequent, but uh, at least when I was interviewing at the kimono rental shops, they said it was popular among. Asian tourists broadly. And I certainly have seen people, I've seen Korean women in kimono taking pictures. I'm, you know, cause I can, I don't speak Korean or Chinese, but I can distinguish them. Um, so I wouldn't say never, but I mean, I've seen it. I think it was popular amongst Korean tourists. You can do similar sort of dress ups in Seoul with traditional Korean dress as well. So that form of tourism, um, I think is popular more broadly in in Asia as the China examples. Yeah, I guess as scholars, we're, we're sometimes looking for, for things under the surface and maybe they're, they're not there. But uh, I want to stay on the historical tension team and talk and go from Kiwano to um, your chapter on Ryoma. Uh, was a lot of fun to read. It's like another... Yeah, every time I do, I tell people, the Japanese people that I do that I work uh, also in Kyoto, they immediately ask about Ryoma, which I find quite funny. I tell them, um, so in, in your chapter, you focus on two sites: uh, this the uh, Teradaya Inn, right in Fushimi, where he was murdered, and then there's a shrine dedicated to him, uh, Kyoto Ryozan Gokuju Goku Shrine. Uh, now, as my work on Kyoto, the the work that I do uh, is focusing on military history and heritage in Kyoto, which is, of course, something which is mostly a pre-war uh, subject. Now, those two sites stood out for me immediately because Fushimi was and still is chock full of military imperialist sites. And you think about the Meiji Emperor Museum uh, on Momoyama, and there's the Nobu Shrine right there, right? Uh, and then there's the former site of 6th Division, which was heavily involved in the King Massacre, which is now university site and the Goku Shrine in particular is uh, I don't know I can call it a nationalist Disneyland in a way because there's we have statues of Kamikaze and model for Labin Pal and and sort of so and so on and so on so I wonder if how if if any you see those two phenomena interacting or is it completely separated can because what I think is here is maybe Taiken or experience here is also a form of unseeing those less savory aspects of the past. And I think... Yeah, I like that. I mean, I I ended up at Fushimi just because, um, again, everything seems like happenstance, but uh, Ryomaden came out. And so I was following 
Dioma tourism and seeing where you, you could buy these books that were like, go here for to see where he was. And so I was looking for the places where lots of tourists were, were looking at Dioma sites. And I didn't actually know a lot about the Fushimi area um, until this field work um, and was surprised by how many different I would also say nationalist sites there are in that area. I just didn't end up, there were lots of things that I was like, I could have a chapter on this and I could have a chapter on that. And I didn't end up writing about it. But I do think, you know, some of these things, I mean, Dioma's story is attractive because he's a hero and he's part samurai and part modern. And he's been played up in so much media that that he's just really popular. I don't know if I would say that Taiken is directly a way of unseeing, like that's its goal, but there is a definite erasure of the more negative sides of of tourism available in Kyoto. Um, you don't see any of those sites on any of the main web pages or, of course, history buffs, people who are looking for that can find it, right? And you, you can go to the Goku Shrine and lots of people do, um, but it's definitely none of that part of the history is is played up in in even even some of the domestic tourism books, right? Yeah, of course. I mean, it's not intentional, but right, I'm not saying that they're doing it to, to conceal or something like this. But there there are some intentional, like Daniel, you work on Mimizuka, for example, like the. The ear and, ma- ear and nose mount, right? This is intentionally concealed, right? Absolutely. In a way, because it doesn't have the English signage and things for it, it's uh, concealed in that way. And obviously, it doesn't get a lot of visitors. I'd say the same for a lot of um, for Kokoku Shrine as well. And next to Kokoku Shrine is another place that I look at, Ryozen Kanon. But I think it's, um, and that is a World War II heritage, uh, World War II uh, memorial temple, um, a temple for memorializing World War II uh, dead. Um, but uh, yeah, I think as you as you're saying there, Jen, there's uh, it's partly just because there's not many people visiting it, and perhaps that's a reflection of what people are interested in about Kyoto. They're not interested in um, modern uh, Japan and. Uh, that maybe shifts back to Rand's question of, uh, of why that is and if there's something being concealed there. So what do you think about that? I mean, the more general idea of Kyoto um, and why people are interested in the city. Yeah, I mean, that wouldn't fit in with the heritage story that's being told, right? Uh, uh, those perhaps more modern moments, even though there's, you know, Kyoto Station is not traditional, right? There are lots of yeah. modern buildings in Kyoto. Um but the heritage that's being promoted and and I think that most domestic tourists as well go for is is a different kind of heritage than that for sure. I think I guess I would say I think many of those sites are obscured, certainly for international tourists, right? They're just not translated and they're not uh, you can find them because you can Google anything, um, but you're gonna have to do some translating yourself. Um, and they're just not the kinds of so- sites that are promoted, especially to international tourists. The, the thing that stood out to me the most when I was there was um, 
uh, the the area south of the station um, that has typically been associated with Korean communities or Buraku, the city has had a lot of trouble. They kept wanting to expand there because there's more space. And they've had a lot of trouble doing that. Um, not a lot of businesses will move down there. There's still a lot of stigma. But tourists, especially international tourists, are just totally oblivious to all of that. Um, so Nintendo moved down there as a way to try and promote that this is an okay area as well. And they've put up some hotels. Um, but that that's another area where um, I think you've got some competing narratives and international tourists in particular are just totally unaware of it. It's not, it's not easily available in any of the information. So certainly there's a, I don't know, erasure of the negative aspects and send, even though we don't want too many tourists in the famous places, keeping them in the safe, narrow, central curated part of the city is, is more attractive to, you know, city officials and it's easier to keep, keep things in check yeah and you know we have uh, we have people in our project work on Gojuraku and uh, the red light district which is slightly north and east of, of the area you're talking about which was a uh, foreign Buraku area there's a Yakuza headquarters there but it's marvelous and, and Nintendo, gorgeous and Nintendo yeah, headquarters and, too right yeah Speaking the old Nintendo, Nintendo headquarters yeah. yeah yeah I mean so people will go to see the Nintendo headquarters but they're completely oblivious to, to, I mean, for me, this is fascinating, right? You can walk through those areas that have such a charged history, but you're totally oblivious because you are kind of go to where the tourist books and the guys are telling you. Um, yeah, so, and yeah, just uh, on, on what you said before about why, why people go to Kyoto also, it's a thing because, again, there's some kind of division of labor. Uh, uh, Tokyo is the modern, right? People go to Tokyo for modernity, to go to Kyoto for a tradition, go to Hiroshima for, I don't know why, because my work is original in Hiroshima, and then people come to Hiroshima and they're not sure what they want to see, right? <laughs> There's not much to see. So, yeah, so I guess those meta-narratives are kind of uh, dominating all three. So, so uh, one really interesting part of your book was your focus on um, the transition, as you described before, and how it's reflected in the guides which who have been working for you know some of them for 50 years or so or more um but also in the hotels um it, i really found anyway that that looking at the history of tourism through architecture of hotels quite interesting could you explain more about it jen yeah, yeah. The the main example that I have in the book is the Miyako Hotel, which is now the Miyako Sheraton. And it's the second oldest Western style hotel in Kyoto. And um, I just happened to the, the father of a child who was in class with my son <laughs> was the manager there. So um, I got a couple of tours and I was surprised that um, it's it's a big rambling hotel kind of near uh, the Heian Shrine. And um, so he took me into some of the areas and, and he said, basically, this hallway, and, and it wasn't remodeled very well, uh, hadn't been redone recently, but he said, this hallway essentially fits a busload of tourists and two drivers. And it was, this wing was built uh, for the Osaka Bampaku in 1970. And so he was 
showing different parts of the hotel. It's also got a little traditional house right in the middle um, that you can stay in as well. And the Imperial family, um, uh, the Showa emperor loved that hotel and always stayed there and had a suite on the corner overlooking the, the, Tori for the Heian Jingu. Um, and so it was that that was a really insightful tour because he knew so much about the history of the building. But that made me think about other hotels. There's so many uh, Japanese business hotels and and the Shugaku Ryoko or school trips. There's so many hotels that have just enough space for a bus of students and their cafeterias are designed for um, they can host other people, but they're designed for large groups of students who are traveling to Kyoto. Um, and so even in the hotels you and the way that architecture changes, you can see those layers. And of course, in the course of my research, Airbnb uh, took off globally and entered Japan. And that was very controversial. It was controversial everywhere, but especially in Kyoto, there was so much. One, one year when I went back, I think in 2017, that was what everybody was talking about was the disruption of Airbnb rentals and the noise that tourists make and they don't know how to throw their trash away properly and how disruptive it was to local neighborhoods. I think Kyoto even put into place an ordinance much stricter than many places have and then the other ordinances Japan put in place that the owner has to live within a certain radius of the of the Airbnb rental. Um, so housing is a is a constant problem for lots of tourists in the city. Um, but you can see again the layers of sort of mass tourism and then the school groups um, and then find your own way Airbnb um, in in thinking about the architecture of the city. That's another example of it. Yeah, I think you found something really interesting there because it is such a, uh, it's unusual for a hotel in Kyoto to have so much land, I think, and to be so expansive. Um, I've had an adventure through there and half of it is a ghost hotel. It's very much shining and, yeah, um, Jack Nicholson. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think you, you, it was really interesting to read that part there. Perhaps, Ryan, do you want to uh, shoot with the next question? Yeah, I have a question that I always wanted to ask about about something, you know, because so much of your book tackles things that we, as people who live in Japan or are living in Japan, don't really take seriously, but really should take seriously, right? And my question is about the Four Seasons and what we see uh, a lot of expats or people who study Japan as almost obsession and unexplained obsession of Japanese by the four seasons, with the Japanese tourist industry, not all Japanese, of course, with the four seasons. Uh, and you you do make a good case for taking it seriously. And you show how the season and seasonal-based tourism play an important role in Kyoto. Uh, can you convince me <laughs> that four seasons are important and it's not just a made-up tourist gimmick? I wonder I'm if I'm going to get fired from. I, I'm <laughs> going to get fired from from Japanese studies now. For a <laughs> no, yeah. I think that's exactly right. So that's um, another one of my yes and questions, really, because the seasons are overrated, right? Like the second sakura come out, everything's pink, and all the drinks are pink, and all the candies and the Kit Kats. I mean, it it is over the top, especially around sakura and and the leaves changing. Um, and yet, I think there is a larger history there. 
um, that thinks about seasons. I was really influenced by Haruo Shirane's book, The Culture of the Four Seasons. He's thinking about the way seasons work in poetry and literature and some older traditions. Um, so I think both of those things are true. The seasons, I mean, the, the sakura are announced on the, on the weather report in Japan. So there is, it's not just in Kyoto tourism where you, there's a lot of hype about some of these seasonal um uh, features. I think there is more attention in some ways to seasons in Japan than anything I'm used to. And at the same time, there's, you know, a lot of hype about it and it is precisely marketed. Um, just the sheer number of things that are pink right around the Sakura time, right. Or, or ume flavored right before that, right. When the plum come out, but, but I can list the flowers that bloom when, in in Japan, and I can't hear because I'm not a gardener. So it's just it, people tell you um, the Kyoto website has you can look and see what's in bloom when and how full it is. So domestic tourists, I think, do go to Kyoto for seasonal tourism to see. I mean, they, you can see changing leaves anywhere you are in Japan, right? I mean, the leaves don't only change colors in Kyoto, and yet people do make pilgrimages to see the leaves in the hills, the mixture of green and and reds, um, and in Arashiyama, it's particularly famous. So there are there are traditions of Meisho that I think are being drawn there, even as um, it, it's pretty hyped. I don't know if that convinces you, but... Uh, well, uh, well uh, yeah, I read the book, so... <laughs> and, and yeah, I'm... I'm I'm of course, but um, of course, I, as a historian, I look always to the historical. There's a reason for those uh, for those things. For it's part of identity making, you know, in a way. And for example, um, sakura, uh, cherry blossom, is a huge part of being Japanese and experiencing Japaneseness. And this has historical, this historical reasons. Uh, Takagi Roshi have really good work. Um, do you remember the title of the book, Daniel? I uh, don't remember off the top of my head, but uh, very great work about how it's introduced in the 19th century as an all Japanese uh, thing to experience. Sorry, it's um, on that too. I think it's on the two uh, capitals, Kyoto and Nara. So there's a chapter in there on Sakurai. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so there is a reason. Yeah. The sumiyoshi is the uh, the main type of sakura. Is more of a like a late Edo and Meiji sort of period thing, but you know it has longer roots. Of course, sakura, different types of sakura have longer roots in history. Sorry, Ran. Yeah, no, it's it's not just not something that has come undisturbed from Heian period to now, when we all experience the same way that people in Heian Kyo experience the four seasons. Uh, and there, there are there are reasons for it, but you're right. It is more important in Japan than other places. Yeah. Yes, and I, I will see that. The and it's certainly in Kyoto, the the direct links to the Heian period are always being played out, right? Even though some of those things like sakura um, come in in the Meiji period or or in the late 19th century, right when when the nation is being reconceived, right? So. Um, that that also is history in some ways, um, yeah. Putting those two main seasons aside, those peak seasons, though, I thought it was good how you you got into all you know 
the selling of winter and summer, the off seasons, and how the city has tried to do that. Yeah, no, thank you. That was really you know, something they have to sort of uh, promote, really. Sorry. Yeah, they had to bribe people with um, <laughs> hotels during the peak season to get them to come for a while because Kyoto is so cold. Uh, it's cold in the winter uh, and hot in the summer, right? <laughs> that's right. That's right. Humid. Especially in Amachia. That's something that always <laughs> look really great in the photos, but if you ever lived in one, they're but... not... Uh... <laughs> climate control certainly not certainly not not much uh um yeah um and the summer yeah both both summer and winter can be pretty pretty tough i might switch the next question here uh your you pinpoint tensions between the local and the global in heritage tourism um including the slogan you use at the start of the book and i think at the end um experience kyoto making kyoto the world's hometown which I found was a quite an interesting little slogan, as well as in campaigns to encourage local people to get educated and to welcome foreign tourists. Um, how has Kyoto City negotiated these tensions, so between the local and the global, and do you think it's been successful? Uh, yeah, I don't think it's been successful. I mean, I think... Um... You know, right before COVID in the last mayoral election, I think over-tourism was a huge part of that election. Um, and Kadokawa did, was re-elected, but uh, uh, that was a lot, there was a lot of critique. And around then as well, there were so many national news stories about tourists behaving badly in Kyoto and how difficult it was in Kyoto. In fact, during the increase in tourism, over the time period of my book, Japanese tourists were increasing as well. So international tourists are a relatively small percentage of the tourists to Kyoto. And Japanese tourists were increasing during that boom as well until about 2017. So if you look at the city's numbers, starting around 2017, domestic tourists were tapering off. So domestic tourists declined in, in the over-tourism. And so I think there was a lot of tension about that. There, there really were. I mean, I've... There's always been a lot of tourists in Kyoto, and it was it was unbelievable, um, you know, in some of 2017, especially 2018 and 2019. Um, I did speak with people who were excited about the tourists um, and thought that even the kimono rental, uh, there would be phases, but people would say, I find it lively and it makes it more interesting. Um, so there were people who really liked the tourism, but I think there were a lot of tensions for the city for sure. Um, and interestingly, there was just an article in, um, so one of the ways the city tried to handle it was by these really interesting manners posters. So there would be these um, posters saying, you know, teaching foreigners manners about how to do things or a sign showing like, don't hit the mica with a selfie stick or showing behaviors not to do. Um, so there was an attempt to sort of teach foreigners the rules. Um, but I, I don't think that was very successful. And, you know, as, as we mentioned, Japan is just opening up again today. And I think, I think everybody's wondering, like, how's that going to go? And just in the last month, the city has put out a couple of new things on their website about behaviors. And their new slogan is enjoy slash respect Kyoto. So a lot of focus on your 
tour will also be better. Your time in Kyoto will also be better if you follow these etiquette rules. And if we all follow these rules, sort of everything will go more smoothly. The other thing they've added that they just rolled out is a Kyoto congest- uh, congestion forecast. So there's going to be a live cam at some peak places like... Uh, uh, Hanami Koji in Gion. So you can look at the camera on the web and decide whether it's too crowded to go or not. I, I think I'm pretty, I'll, I'll join Ron and be skeptical here. I, I'm pretty cynical that that's going to work really well, but you can see some attempt to mitigate the effects of just way too many tourists walking around in, in some of those, those areas. I mean, they've had uh, what we've had two, two and a half years or so for people to come up with new ideas and to initiate uh, some of those while domestic tourists have been returning. So it's going to be interesting to see how things develop, especially um, with Kyoto City facing bankruptcy. Um, there's been the, the city, the mayor again, has stated that Kyoto will... Uh, go bankrupt in 10, 20 years at, uh, um, if things keep on progressing as they are. And um, tourism has seen, international tourism has seen, of course, as a way to avoid this. Um, so we can see through that, I think, just how dependent Kyoto has become on international tourists. How can Kyoto, do you think, better balance the benefits and drawbacks of tourism in the future? Do you have any other ideas apart from putting up webcams um, for when tourists do return uh, to record numbers? Because it's likely to happen, of course, isn't it, over the next few years? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know if I have any direct suggestions, but I do think being attentive to a, the need for tourists, but then also the ways that too much tourism can be damaging, tourism pollution or over-tourism you hear about a lot. So figuring out how to, I just don't know how you're ever going to control the numbers. And if you can't control the numbers, there's just going to be lots of people around. But the more, I don't know, maybe some human behavior campaigns, right? And, and getting more people to follow the rules and act properly and just being attentive. So in, uh, there was a New York times article actually, because Japan is opening, there's all these articles. And there was one just last week, um, that was titled something like, um, Kyoto wants you back, but it has some suggestions to tourists. And mayor Katakawa was quoted in there. And he said, he said, Kyoto is not a tourist city, but it is a city that welcomes tourists or values tourists. So that is interesting because that's very different language than the two strategic plans that I looked at where it really was Kyoto is a tourist city. So I think you've got the city itself has some understanding of the tensions. So maybe that'll help. Yeah, only time will tell because, you know, Kyoto is just not so big, right? It, it, it has a capacity that we, we're almost in capacity right now. So it'll be interesting to see how it works. And of course, again, it's not just uh, Kyoto. I mean, you hear the same kind of stories about Italy and Rome and Venice, of course, right? This is a huge problem. I think we should be thankful there's no cruises stopping in Kyoto. So that being said, for... I thought it was interesting in your in your book there. You showed that 
still international tourists, even at the peak, were still a minority of tourists to Kyoto. Uh, a third or something like that is, is my right here, maybe less. Um, the majority oh, is right. domestic tourists. So yeah, I guess I have to... well, the diff- what is the difference uh, between them as well? Um, yeah, and I have to say, in two years... So two problematic. Yeah, sorry. Uh, I have to say, even two years now, I've been coming to Kyoto during COVID, and there's no international tourists, but it's still packed full of people, right? And you don't have those stories about misbehaving Japanese tourists, not because they don't misbehave. I mean, God knows we all almost get run down by bikes, bicycles <laughs> on a daily basis, right? Uh, but um, but I guess they don't put sticky, st- selfie sticks in Michael's faces. I don't know. But anyway, uh, I just want to ask before we finish, uh, Jen, what's what's next on your plate? What What's your next, what are you working on now? What's the next book? Yeah, well, it's really hard to be an anthropologist when you can't go <laughs> to Japan. So... Um, uh, and the book just came out in February. So I think right now uh, I have a couple of follow-up articles I'd like to do. I mean, I'm trying desperately to get there um, in, in May or June to follow up, right, and see what's happening and what's changed after the book. I can see a couple articles there. Um, and then, of course, uh, I'm hoping to be involved in the project that you guys are working on on dark tourism and think about some of those, the sites that I'm at the big tourist. The book is about the big tourist sites where everybody is, but what are some of those erasures um, in the city? Um, and there's a couple other, like any book project, there's a couple other things that um, didn't quite make it into the book that might might be a good chapter. I've been thinking a lot about the role of photography, especially because of the selfies and the Instagram curation. Um, and yet photography, and thinking about mass tourism as well, you would drive to see a site and take a picture. Photography has always been a critical part of, of tourism. My, my own experience of just going to Japan off and on for, I don't know, maybe it's been 30 years. Um, I have the exact same picture of, you know, Kiyomizudera from like all these different years, which is ridiculous, right? So tourism has always been a, a part of going to see places. And I think uh, in some of the trends, I, I didn't theorize social media or the way that's changed with with cell phones. So I've got a bunch of little sort of side things coming out of the book that I, that I think um, will be my next my next project to write up. I'm not ready to launch into a new book yet. So, I also, I also just finished the book. I completely understand. <laughs> All right. So uh, thank you. Thank you for giving us time today. Thank you, Daniel, for joining Kyoto in such an early, early hour. And uh, I hope to have you here again soon. Not too soon, but <laughs> soon enough. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks, Jen. Great. Thank you so much.